Greetings, Internet. I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and supposedly the end. I think they did away with phases, but we're talking Spider-Man Far From Home. Uh, and then uh, after that, we're going to be discussing the latest movie from Ari Aster and A24, Midsummer. So without further ado, let's get started. The world needs the next Iron Man. Are you going to step up or not? I gotta get you guys out of here. Get on the jet. Who are you? I work with Spider-Man. You work for Spider-Man? I work with Spider-Man, not for Spider-Man. New plan. In order to avoid spoilers, I am going to split this review into two parts. First, the non-spoiler parts, and then for those of us, those of you who have seen the movie and want to hear my thoughts on the spoilery bits, uh, stay tuned for that. So, non-spoiler review, this is one of my favorite MCU movies. This is top 10 for me. This is one I enjoyed personally more than Endgame. I think Endgame was a bit overloaded with its own sort of need to put an end to that first chunk of the cinematic universe and had so much, you know, weight go behind it. And this is just a lighthearted, fun Spider-Man romp. And uh, it's, it's really good. And it's also like a really solid story. This is dealing, this is the first time we're see really seeing the fallout from Infinity War and Endgame play out and we're seeing references to what has happened you know the, the, we're seeing the universe ha at, at trying to deal with everything that's happened and peter is meanwhile trying to get back to some semblance of normality and unfortunately he's also dealing with the loss of his of the MC, in, for the mcu his uncle ben was tony stark tony stark was the one who recruited him um in the first place and then went on to really sort of guide him in in being a superhero and to lose tony means he's really lost his uncle ben and so he's dealing with the loss of this father figure that he's had in the mcu and it's and you're really seeing how he's handling it and meanwhile um you have happy hogan who's kind of kind of serving in place of Tony and being sort of, you know, uh, another person for Peter to interact with and deal and deal with these issues with. And, um, and it's, and it's all really sweet and touching and I, and I really enjoyed it. It's all really well done, I think. Um, and of course you've also got the fact that because Spider-Man has taken part in this massive, you know, cosmic event. He's no longer just your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He can't go back to the way things used to be. He's got to deal with the fact that he's a lot more of a of a major presence in the world. And you know, sometimes he may he may have to leave New York and be more and be outside of his of his you know his old life. And, um, you know, and of course, and of course, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's Quentin Beck is just fan fantastic. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, and I, I, I can't, uh, commend him enough for his portrayal and the way he's, 
the way you you know, overall you know worked out. I, I'm getting into too many spoilers about it, but he, I think Gyllenhaal is a fantastic uh, entry into the MCU as Mysterio, and um, uh, yeah, I think uh, personally this is also my favorite iteration of Peter and MJ. Uh, I think you know Tobey Maguire and and Kirsten Dunst are okay. Uh, they didn't do MJ in Amazing Spider-Man because they were already, because, you know, nobody gave it, you know, the movies were so bad, nobody cared enough to get to Amazing Spider-Man 3 where they would have introduced MJ. But uh, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone as Peter and Gwen Stacy is are, is fine. Uh, but I really, I enjoyed MJ in the last movie. Here, MJ and Peter are just perfect levels of like weird and awkward and dorky and as much as mj tries to play off as the sort of you know um uh, what's the term um sort of uh aloof you know doesn't care about anything she's just ultimately just a huge dork under it all and she and peter have this amazing chemistry zendaya and tom holland have amazing chemistry as peter and mj and they work perfectly together and um they they really are my favorite uh on-screen pairing of Peter and MJ. And um I think that's about all I really need, you know, the uh, I think that's the major points I wanted to cover for the spoiler bits before going into spoiler territory. Um uh I yeah, I, you know, I just got to say, yeah, personally, better than Endgame for me. I enjoyed it way more and um top-tier MCU for sure. This, this is going to be a hard act to, you know, the you know, Endgame was a hard act to follow and this managed to hold its own. Now I'm really curious what Marvel does. So I'm very, I'm very, I'm very, I'm highly anticipating what's coming up next. So, but, uh, you know, this is definitely my pick of the week and uh, I highly recommend to go out and see it if you haven't already. And for those of you that have. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Last chance if you haven't seen the movie yet. These are the spoilers. So, here we go. I think it was kind of obvious to anybody who has been a, you know, a follower of Spider-Man in any capacity that Mysterio is going to be the ultimate bad guy. He was going to be the the you know, the overall villain of the piece. They they managed to keep it keep it a uh, kind of under wraps as to what was going on, what was really going on. But any, but the movie plays out exactly how you would expect a Mysterio plot to go about. For those of you who don't know, um, Mysterio in the comics was a special effects uh, artist who, uh, I forget what, the, what brought him into crime, but basically he used um, like stage magic, sort of special effects, smoke and mirrors to be essentially Spider-Man Scarecrow. And that's exactly how he's played here. In fact, there's a big sequence that feels exactly like um like uh, like one of the sequence the Arkham games uh Scarecrow sequences and it works amazingly. I loved it. Um and the fact that it turns out that this everything all it, you know, you think, "Oh my god, this whole storyline, this whole thing about, you know, maybe they're not going to you think maybe it's not going to be a you know, you know, maybe think, you know, Mysterio is just going to be played straight and it's going to be a hero, actually. But no, this whole time, yeah, Quentin Beck is exactly how you would imagine Mysterio. He's a 
he's a he's a, you know he's a he's a obfuscator he he's a sha- you know he's a shapeshifter he's able to hide behind smoke and mirrors and once Spider-Man figures that out and is and actually has these fights with him and Quentin Beck has to tries to overcome Spider-Man using these smoke and mirrors it is really uh it is really amazing stuff like i i would put it on par with some of the uh dimensional bits from uh Doctor Strange at points uh not as trippy i'll say that definitely not as trippy as Doctor Strange but but a whole lot of cool imagery going on and um yeah, the fact that it's also all, like once again, this is all tied into Tony. There's still Fallout, and it even ties into the previous MCU movies. Um, like I don't know if I I want to say it's the same actor because I really hope. Hold on, now I gotta because that's the thing. Quentin Beck uh, wasn't there in our in a uh, Civil War, but basically it reveals that Quentin Beck was the one who created the. Um, the uh the, the the hologram program that uh tony used in civil war and he jokingly called it fart and and so to have his his device stolen from him and made into a laughing stock by by tony as he gives it gives quentin the perfect uh push to really um you know to become who we who, you know become the villain that he that that we know as Mysterio. It gave it's a perfect sort of um you know um uh in you know like a new origin for Mysterio. The fact that he's another creation of he's another um another cre- you know villain created by Tony's own arrogance following the likes of uh Ivan well not Ivan Vega but that's his father that's more of his father but um Iron Monger uh, you know, Whiplash, I, you know, v- Ivan Vanko. Um, uh, who is another one? Um, not, not the Mandarin, but like, um, you know, but, but yeah, so many people that Tony has spurned and, you know, whose lives have been ruined by his own, uh, his own, you know, actions that you really, um, you know, you you feel for Quentin Beck in this movie, and I'm I'm sorry, I'm kind of uh, pat, um, you know, kind of padding for time because I'm trying to figure out. Basically, what I'm trying to figure out is there's a character part of Quentin Beck's. Because that's the, thing, the other thing too. Quentin Beck has a crew of people that um that uh, help him out, help him to realize the. You know the Mysterio uh, persona, and I'm trying to figure out if that was the same actor or not. Producer in Iron Man. Wait a second. Is this? Is it him? William Grinter Riva. William Ginter Riva. Hold on. William. Ginter Riva. Is 
Stark Industries scientist. In 2009, he was a member of the science team ordered by Obadiah Stane to try and recreate the arc reactor technology, only to quickly fail task and be berated for his failures by his superior. So, I was right. So, th so it was the same actor. Uh, the one that, the one that, um... The one that Obadiah is yelling at when he says, Tony Stark built this in a, in, the, in, the, in a cave in the desert with a box of scraps. And uh, the scientist will, well, well, you know, I'm not Tony Stark. That, number one, I had no idea that that actor was Peter Billingsley. As in Ralphie from A Christmas Story, Peter Billingsley. So yeah. That that minor role in Iron Man was done by Ralphie from uh, from A Christmas Story, and he comes back. He is most of the other crew for um, for Quentin Beck are mentioned that they've been They've all been spurned by Tony Stark in some capacity, but Peter Billingsley's character is the only one who was actually brought back from a previous movie. And I had no idea that he that that, that was him this whole time. And that's a cool callback too, but it's, it's once again showcasing this continuity between the movies. And I really dug it. And it was a nice, it was a perfect touch. And I had no idea that was Peter Billingsley this whole time. I completely went over my head. I didn't even recognize him. Um... So yeah, the fact that the Mysterio creation came about because of Tony's own actions is a perfect sort of tie-in to this whole idea of the fallout from Endgame and uh, the the whole you know this whole first chunk of the MCU. We're still feeling the aftershocks of everything that's happened so far, and uh, so and then it all culminates in this amazing climactic fight where um, basically uh, you know. Uh, Peter has been given access to one last AI uh, and Quentin gets his hold of it and he uses it as, uh, uses that and the drones to really show, to just do this whole spectacle about, uh, you know, showcasing Mysterio's powers and turns out it's all his pro, his holograph program with the drones attached. And so now that he has access to all of Stark Industries drones and he's able to do this whole city-wide spectacle across London. And it looks so real, but it's all holographs and drones. And the and how the way Peter gets around everything is just all it's just a, a, a solid climactic fight. And then we get into the the after credit sequences. Uh, I love the after credit sequences, especially the mid one, the mid roll is perfect because it, it finally introduces an iconic Spider-Man character to the MCU. And it turns out there was never going to be anybody to replace J. Jonah Jameson as, as, as well as, you know, there's, uh, as, um, J.K. Simmons, J.K. There was never going to be anybody to replace him as J. Jonah Jameson. J.K. Simmons is brought back as J. Jonah Jameson. This time, in the MCU, instead of the head of an actual major newspaper, he is 
the MCU's Alex Jones. Complete with the Daily Bugle logo looking exactly like InfoWars. The InfoWars logo. And the way J.K. Simmons plays it is exactly as, as... It's like this mix of his original J. Jonah Jameson portrayal uh, and an Alex Jones imitation. And it fits perfect. It makes so much sense that J. Jonah Jameson would be the Alex Jones of the MCU. He's exact, that's exactly the mentality J. Jonah has, ever, has always had with Spider-Man. Uh... And the way he goes about it, the way he goes about, you you know, and that's the thing. They tease for what's to come in the next Spider-Man movie by revealing Peter Parker is Spider-Man. So now we have to wait until the next Spider-Man movie to deal with Peter being outed as Spider-Man and what's going to happen next. If this is going to, we have to wait until whenever Spider-Man 3 comes along to finally deal with that. It, it is a, it is exactly the kind of thing you expect from an ends, from a, from a post-credit stinger. You know, it's like, well, now we have to deal with that. And then, uh, the fun, the last, the last stinger was the revelation that Talos and, um, and I forget who it was. I think maybe his wife, uh, had, were playing, uh, Maria Hill and uh, and uh, Nick Fury this whole time during the course of the movie, and I'm not sure if that means that he's been Nick Fury since the '90s, or if at some point Nick Fury and Talos switched places during the events of the event during the whole events of um following Captain Marvel. Like, at what point since Captain Marvel did Nick Fury head up into space and help out the Skrulls? And at what point did Talos come in and take his place? Was it just for the events of this movie? Was it following... Was it during the whole Endgame thing? You know, how long has Talos been Nick Fury? And that also begs the question, where is Maria Hill during all of this? Was Maria Hill a Skrull this whole time? So many questions, none of the answers. Uh, we'll see what happens. When, we'll see how Marvel explains the this twist. But yeah, um, just overall phenomenal stuff from uh, Far From Home. Definitely one of my favorite MCU movies, and one of the already in my top seven for the f favorite movies of the year. So it's gonna be it's gonna be hard one to top. We'll see if anything else comes out this year that can top it. Just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate. I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now, because you know. We only do this every 90 years. I was most excited for you to come. definitely looking forward to this movie um once i saw it was once i saw the first trailer drop i think only trailer um it's the follow-up from ari aster who made hereditary as his first feature-length film and it's a full-on like wicker man style sort of pagan ritualistic sort of sort of horror 
you know, thing where every, you know, just so many horrible things happen in this sort of bucolic, um, uh, fanciful setting. And I was definitely looking forward to this and I wasn't disappointed. Uh, there is no unpopped kernel for the week because I also recommend you go see Midsummer. But I just, I enjoyed Spider-Man a lot more personally. And I think what it comes down to is, um, much like how Jordan Peele followed up Get Out with a very ethereal, atmospheric movie that kind of lacks a bit in the story department, Midsummer also is similarly how, like, Hereditary was to Get Out, where there were very story-driven horror movies, Midsummer is very much like us in that it's very ethereal and it's very atmosphere driven and not very story centric. It's it's a very much just like us. It's also pretty much like an art film almost. It is very artistically driven and not very story driven. And I'm just always going to be the kind of guy who enjoys film as a storytelling medium more than an artistic medium. Not to begrudge people who make artistic films, but that's never going to be what I go see film for. I'm always going to go see it for good storytelling more so than good, like, filmmaking and camera work and visuals. I'm just not interested in that sort of bit uh, over the story. Uh, but, you know, the story here is solid. Uh, you've got... The only two names I recognize were Florence Pugh, who I just who I was introduced to via fighting with my family as who, as the actress who played Paige from the, from the WWE and Will Poulter, who is the racist cop from, uh, from Detroit, from the movie Detroit and uh racist cop from Detroit. Which one's that? No. Uh, he's also, um, Oh God. I, he's been in so much. He was the dorky kid in we're the Millers. He was, um, apparently he was also used to scrub in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So he's been around a while. Um, but, uh, he was also in the Maze Runner series as Galley. Uh, something called, what was War Machine? Oh, the Brad Pitt Netflix movie War Machine, he was in there. Um, Detroit, he was the one, he was the one racist cop, uh, don't know this one. Kids in love. But yeah, this kid's kind of been on the on the rise lately. And uh he I definitely immediately recognized him when they revealed him in the trailer for Midsummer. And he he you know was kind of in that same vein as uh God, why can't I remember his name? The one from uh Fan Miles Teller. He's very much in that Miles Teller sort of douchey vein. And um, he's sort of like the very douchebaggy friend in this movie to, uh, what's his, who's the guy who plays the, Jack Rayner is the one who plays sort of, the Florence Pugh is the main character, and then um, Jack Rayner is her love interest, significant other. He's been in a bunch of stuff, uh, he was in that Macbeth movie starring, uh, Oh, uh, what? Uh, Michael Fassbender. He was in Free Fire. I don't remember him in Free Fire. Uh, he was the voice of Brother Wolf in Mowgli, Legend of the Jungle for Netflix. Uh, he was in On the Basis of Sex. I don't remember his character. He was also in Detroit, oddly enough. Uh, but yeah, I don't really recognize him from anything. Shane Dyson. 
in Age of Extinction, Transformers Age of Extinction. Uh, I don't know who that is. Oh! Oh, he was the douchey boyfriend who kept who kept the thing that says it's legal to bang 17-year-olds in the state of Texas. Okay, good. Now I know who this guy is. So yeah, um, very fittingly, he also plays a douchebag. Yeah, basically, um, everyone in this movie is messed up in some way or another. Uh, Jack Rayner's character is a douchebag, as is Will Poulter's. Um, oh, the actor from The Good Place, the guy who plays Chidi Anagonye uh, from on The Good Place is uh, another friend. And he is, basically, they're all like in graduate school together. It's not very well established. But, um, basically they go, uh, they have a Swedish friend who takes him to his village, which is a, basically like a, a pagan commune, a la Wicker Man. And they are there for this nine, once every 90 year festival, uh, celebrating, celebrating some sort of. Yo, I don't know what. Once again, this is all very ethereal, atmospheric, not very, you know, like detail oriented or thought out. Um, basically, but basically, uh, it's this, you know, this whole festival that also involves them taking a lot of uh, hallucinogens and uh, tripping balls through good chunks of the movie. And then as this is all going on, they begin, things start to slowly unravel. I, I keep comparing this to Wicker Man because it's the most. It is that is the that is the most direct comparison I can make. It follows a lot of similar beats to Wicker Man, but it's much more artistic and very sort of visually based. It's not so and it's not so it's not so much like a mystery thriller. It's more like here's here are these kids going on this what they think is this interesting sweet vacation to Sweden and just losing their damn minds. They lose their, they got damn minds in this, this on this drug trip field madness, you know, madness festival. And, um, I will say, uh, you know, that does, it, it, you know, there's still some solid theming going on here. Namely that you should, if your significant other, has a lot of a lot of issues especially like there's like uh, Florence Pugh's character suffers a lot of trauma and in fact the whole reason for her going to Sweden is because um Jack Rayner w felt sorry and wanted to bring her along so she wasn't alone because even though they're on the rocks and on the verge of breaking up he they still feel like this weird urge to stay together and number one if you're not happy in your relationship and you have the possibility of breaking it off just just break it off don't just rip the band-aid off and be done with it honestly and then also your significant other is not obligated to be your therapist no matter like if your significant other is willing to help you through traumatic stuff and help you help serve help you you know deal with your trauma that's good but you should not force your trauma, your, your, your dealing with your trauma 
onto your significant other and have them carry that load if they aren't willing to. Like, if they don't want any part of... Like, if they don't... If not everybody is equipped to deal with trauma like a therapist would. Not everybody is a therapist. So unless you have somebody who is empathetic enough to really help you with that sort of... With, with those sorts of issues, then you shouldn't, you know, be... You, know, they, you shouldn't force them into that role. So... That, that you know that's kind of like a big under underpinning is that this this relationship is just completely f ready to fall apart and the fact that they're still together is, is it makes you wonder why like why are you still together you clearly don't really like each other you you clearly have a lot of issues that you need to deal with and and, and you know you shouldn't be you know you shouldn't be force yourselves to be together when you clearly aren't very happy together but you know it's a lot of it's a lot of it's a, it's very it's a, it's very subtle theming there it's not very you know it's not it's not like the text is the subtext whereas the text is just like cults are weird and bad and it's it's just it's just very Yo, if you suspect something, suspect cultish behavior, just just leave. And if people are disappearing, like, just be very. Doesn't matter. Like, like, like that's the other thing is that if you're tripping balls the whole time, and they just keep giving you stuff that keeps you tripping balls, maybe start to question some things. Maybe be like, Nah, nah I'm getting the car. I'm a go. And I, I'm a done, and I'm never coming back. And y'all are crazy, and and no. But yeah, this is a slow descent into madness, as brought to us by Ari Aster. And I, I honestly, as much of a slow burn, it's a slow burn. So it's very methodical, and it's very you know, it's a walking pace, not a running pace. And I think that's part of the reason I was a bit off, put off by it. You know, a, a slow burn should culminate in a in a raging inferno. But what we get with Midsummer is more like a a summer bonfire. A slow burn, you know, I, it feels like it's, it's very downplayed. And even though it's spectacular imagery, I never really felt anything. Like, I was so distant from all of these characters just because... They're so messed up and I never really felt for one character or the other. Like I didn't really feel for Florence Pugh because even though she suffered from a lot of trauma, she's not exact, you know, she's also got, you know, she's also not exactly the best person either. You know, she's, you know, like she's the most sympathetic character, clearly. That's why she's the protagonist. But, you know, she's also got a lot of her own issues that, you know, kind of, make her off-putting to the rest of us and um you know it's not like she's a very charismatic i think the other problem is that florence Pugh isn't exactly the most charismatic actress she was solid as Paige, but you know i didn't feel for her the way i i you know that you would um the girl from it follows say or um jamie lee curtis in uh halloween she wasn't very you know she wasn't real i feel like if there's a a much more charismatic actress that could have that could have really helped this. But Pew was good. It's just I didn't really care much for her character, ultimately. 
Um, and then you know, like her, all her friends are douchebags ultimately, and I don't feel bad for them because they were douchebags, even though the cult is very clearly like messed up and terrible. I just all around didn't really care for any, you know, anybody in this movie, so I didn't really feel devo- uh, attached or you know in, in, in uh, invested in anything. So by the time it gets to the to the climax, where it is once again. If you've seen The Wicker Man, you've essentially seen the, the the skeleton of this movie. The plot line is not beat for beat The Wicker Man. It is, it is, it's like they took the skeleton of The Wicker Man and built something much more elaborate around it. And it's much more floral and artistic and it's very, you know, it's very visually uh, pleasing. But at the same time, it's not as iconic i would say as as the wicker man was i think the wicker man still holds true like in terms of these style of stories i've yet to see something really top that original wicker man in you know in portraying this sort of eerie i think that's the other thing too is that even though the wicker man is a b horror movie it's so the storyline works so well for me and it's so i think it's so well thought out that this movie that is not very, very, you know, concrete story-wise, that it relies a lot more on the visuals, doesn't work as well for me. You know, and I'm sure there are plenty of people who think Midsummer is, it's a, is a vast improvement over even the original Wicker Man. But as somebody who is much more interested in storytelling than visuals, I prefer the original Wicker Man to something like this. And that's not even to say that this is bad. It's just... The things that work for it don't aren't as interesting to me as the stuff that I actually care about, which is the storyline. And you know that you know that isn't to say that you should avoid this either. Like I said, this is another recommend for me, just not as much as Spider Man. And personally, I I think I would I kind of prefer that original Wicker Man just because I think it's much more well executed in what in the story it's trying to tell. Whereas this is much more. Like, it's very artistically beautiful. It is... Ari Aster has proven himself to be just as capable as sort of this artsy film, you know, film auteur of, of sorts. And the same vein as Jordan Peele. Both of them have proven themselves to be highly capable and very artistic filmmakers. It's just... That's not what I go see film for. That's not the kind of thing... You know, that's, you know if I wanted to see art, I'd go to a gallery, you know? I'm not interested in seeing... I mean, I go to the cinema to hear good stories... It's like being told a story around the campfire, not whereas, you know, some pe- some people like to treat film as sort of an, a, a you know an artist at a canvas, and you get to see it as, as if you were in a gallery, and that's just not for me. And that's just my personal preference, is all. So yeah, Midsummer's solid follow up to Hereditary by Ari Aster, but it's just not the kind of horror movie I'd ever rewatch. You know, it's just like it's good. You know, it's very well made. It's very respectable. It's just not my kind of thing, you know? So that was the releases this week. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to have a discussion about the holiday box offices. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. 
I initially wanted to do a Spider-Man retrospective for this early on, but I completely forgot about that being my discussion because I never wrote it down. And then in the week leading up to this, I decided, well, what if I do like the, the seven best, I bring back the Magnificent Sevens and do a, mag, a seven favorite um, Fourth of July releases. And then I realized that most of the Fourth of July releases I haven't seen and those I have seen, I haven't seen in a while. Also, a lot of the 4th of July releases were the Transformers movies, the Michael Bay Transformers movies, and those are awful. So, I think I had like eight that I would have included, including Far From Home. So, I would have had to rewatch seven movies and some watch for the first time in order to finalize the list. And I didn't have that much time in my schedule. I just didn't have that much free time. So, I ended up deciding to go with a look at how the holidays affect the box office and the sort of overall arcing trends that you see, financially speaking, when it comes to the holidays. And uh, what it comes down to is some holidays are best suited for going to, for going to movies than others. Uh, namely, namely um, there's only like one real juggernaut holiday weekend, and that's Memorial Day weekend. Memorial Day weekend is the highest grossing holiday weekend of all time. It is always, like, if you look at the numbers for it, just pulling up Box Office Mojo for the weekends, all time, opening weekend, da 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 So let's take a look at, let's take a look at them in order. According to Box Office Mojo, the highest grossing movies for the weekend of Martin Luther King Day, the most, the highest grossing one was American Sniper. And that was its opening weekend. And that was just because of that particular movie. Otherwise, that was $100 million opening weekend. And um, if you look at it overall, that is still the highest grossing weekend for Martin Luther King Day. You compare that to, you know, then, and then next up was Avatar for that weekend because Avatar was such a juggernaut it was carrying well through January and then include things like Glass uh, Cloverfield a lot of stuff that carried over from previous week no Cloverfield premiered that weekend and so did Glass but like those opened up to half a million you know half a bit you know half a hundred just like less nothing has really broken 50 million dollars besides American Sniper like the highest grossing Opening besides American Sniper was right along with forty eight point six million dollars. So, not even most of Martin Luther King Day weekend never really caters to film goers, mostly because they probably tend to stay at home. You then take a look at um, Super Bowl weekend, which is the lowest grossing of all the weekends, and you've got the highest grossing movie of all time. From Super Bowl weekend is the Hannah Montana Smiley Cyrus Best of Both Worlds concert tour movie with $31 million. Then you got Dear John Taken, which premiered at $24 million. So Taken, even though it was a juggernaut down the line, opened very poorly. And then uh Chronicle, When a Stranger Calls, all of nothing has broken $50 million again. And this time, even the highest grossing one only 
broke brought in thirty one million dollars. Nobody goes to see movies on Super Bowl weekend. It's basically like you're crapping out the movie into theaters and just hoping for the best. After, uh, oddly enough, they don't include Valentine's Day for holiday weekends. Probably because it's you don't get the day off for it. Uh, but President's Day uh, has the highest grossing of all time for that weekend. Namely because it it had the um, it had uh, the luck to be the weekends that Black Panther and Deadpool were released, and so those brought in two hundred forty two million and one hundred fifty two million respectively. Then of course you got the Fifty Shades of Grey movie, which brought in ninety three million, and then Valentine's Day, um, Gary Marshall's Valentine's Day, which brought in sixty three million. Ghost Rider with 52 million, and then it's, it slowly starts to go down to your regular holiday numbers. Jumping ahead to Easter weekend, the highest grossing uh, movies there are, once again, not driven by um, the weekend itself, but by the name recognition. You've got Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, Furious 7, Fate of the Furious, and then Clash of the Titans with $61 million, kind of bringing that you know, you know, the bring down, you know, tailing at the end of the above $50 million marks. And then after that, it's all, you know, 40s and then 30 and then 30s and 20s. You know, this is the same weekend that brought in Hannah Montana, the movie, Scary Movie 4, G.I. Joe Retaliation, a bunch of Tyler Perry movies that all they could they barely brought in any money. A lot of lesser Tyler Perry. It's like big Medea's big happy family. Why did I get married too? Wait, the Matrix opened with $27 million? Hold on a second. Matrix opened on Easter week? Hold on. Yeah, open. I didn't realize how low the Easter, uh, low, uh, the Matrix opened up. It, it was number one that weekend. That's bizarre. I didn't realize it was that low. I I imagine it, I mean, it, it made back its money in the long run, but I didn't realize how low it was initially. Oh, um. Where, what, what about adjusted for inflation? Charts. Genres. Franchises. Not adjusted for tick and price inflation, reloaded was the highest grossing of the of the uh, Matrix movies. I did not realize that. Probably because that first Matrix was kind of skirted by under the radar and then gained a cult following. And so the first follow-up was enough to really get people's attention. And then <laughs> nobody cared by the time uh, Re Revolutions came out. They were like, ah, oh, crap. This is going to, ah, oh, well, this is going to start sucking. So yeah, um, and realize how low, how far down Matrix uh, was compared to the rest of the movies that came out. Like Hannah Montana, the movie. I, I guess you get to change it for inflation, but yeah, I mean, I didn't realize how 
Is there a way to change? What's that asterisk mean? First weekend of wide release. Yeah. All right. So yeah, um, yeah. Easter got lucky with a couple of a couple of high profile movies, but then you take a look at Memorial Day. The top ten movies all grossed over seventy five million dollars. The lowest grossing of the top ten, uh, number ten, grossed eighty five million dollars. Uh, its opening weekend, Memorial Day. You hit fifty million. The fifth, the lowest, yeah, the the first um, movie to bottom out at fifty million dollars was The Hangover Part Three at twenty four. The only movie, you know, the movies that didn't make money after that were bombs like Epic and Tomorrowland and Prince of Persia: The Sands of Time, and Sex in the City Two, Alice Through the Looking Glass, you know, those kinds of movies. But yeah, you take a look at the top. You take a look at the top ten for Memorial Day. Number one, Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End, one hundred and thirty-nine million dollars that weekend. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, one hundred twenty-six million dollars that weekend. X Men: The Last Stand, one hundred twenty-two million. Fast and Furious Six, one hundred seventeen million. This this year, Aladdin, one hundred sixteen million. Days of Future Past, one hundred ten million. The Hangover Part Two, one hundred three million. Solo: A Star Wars Story, one hundred three million. Jurassic, the Lost World Jurassic Park, 90 million. The Day After Tomorrow, 85 million. Bruce Almighty, 85 million. X-Men Apocalypse, 79 million. Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Men Tell No Tales, 78 million. Pearl Harbor, 75 million. Mission Impossible 2, 70 million. Night of the Museum Battle of the Smithsonian, 70 million dollars. Men in Black 3, 69 million dollars. Nice. So yeah, Memorial Day weekend is the highest, is the, is, you know, if you can't, make your money there with your blockbuster you're yo you had a, a he wouldn't have a snowball's chance in hell because that's the weekend to get money uh you compare that to independence day you get nothing over 100 million nothing has breached 100 million dollars like it did with um memorial day the highest grossing for for uh independence day was 97 million dollars with transformers dark of the moon and Spider-Man Far From Home just barely almost edged it out for being the highest grossing for Independence Day weekend with uh, $93 million. Uh, Spider then Spider-Man 2, $88 million. Uh, Despicable Me, $83. Uh, Despicable Me 2, $83. Despicable Me 3, $72. The original Transformers, $70 million. War of the World, $64 million. So the top 10 for Independence Day is all over $50 million as well. But that slowly begins to drop as fewer, as more and more movies start to not earn as much money. You get down to things like Terminator Genesis, which only brought in $27 million um, its opening weekend during Independence Day. And uh, The Lone Ranger, which brought in $29 million. So not a lot of people, some pe people will go see like big budget tentpole movies but a lot of the independence day releases aren't getting a lot of attention ultimately although once again i'm not a, these aren't adjusted for inflation so a lot of these older ones could be actually making more money overall i wish box office mojo would include that 
Um, you cut from Independence Day to Labor Day weekend. The highest grossing is two thousand Rob, Rob Zombie's 2007 Halloween remake with $30 million. Nothing grosses over $50 million Labor Day weekend opening. Uh, then immediately dropping from 30 to $21 million with The Possession. Then, like, everything after that is just all, you know, middling to low, really low numbers. Like, it, it dropped, like, we start to hit under 10 with The Crow City of Angels at 24. At, they're, like, they're, so there are 23 movies that opened at, at in double digits with, well... I guess uh one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Octuple digits. Uh and then after that it's it, they nothing broke nothing could get into octuple octuple digits that <laughs> that weekend. Uh a lot of these are, you know, ones that would have gained a lot more money. Like Transporter 2 and 05 would have definitely been benefited from inflation. Jeepers Creepers 2 and 03. Uh, the original Jeepers Creepers, uh, you know, from 01. Uh, All About Steve came out Labor Day weekend. As did uh, Lawless. And the uh, Nicolas Cage Wicker Man opened to $11 million Labor Day weekend. Babylon AD. The Gerard Butler film Gamer. Apollo 18. As above, so below. Shark Knight 3D. These are the kind of movies you're getting on Labor Day weekend. So it's any wonder that Labor Day doesn't get the recognition that Independence Day and Memorial Day weekend does. Look at what it's saddled with. Now, sadly, they include a link to Halloween, but there, it, but the link is broken. So I don't know what happened there. Box uh, Box Office Mojo needs to get on that. Uh, you go to Thanksgiving and you've got uh, the highest grossing movie there for three days is Frozen. Five days is Frozen. So Frozen kind of tops out. Actually, the top six movies for uh, Thanksgiving weekend highest grossing openings are Disney movies. Frozen, Ralph 2, Ralph Breaks the Internet, Moana, Toy Story 2, Coco, Tangled and then Creed 2 and then followed by The Good Dinosaur and Enchanted. So Disney essentially owns Thanksgiving for all intents and purposes. Uh, you follow that up with four Christmases, but that but by that point we're getting an, uh, out of the $50 million mark. Um, Thanksgiving, oddly enough, not as, not as successful. Uh, once again, you get out of the $50 million mark within the top 10. Enchanted and Four Christmases couldn't break $50 million their opening weekends, but that's also not adjusting for inflation. So Thanksgiving is a, sol is a, is a solid uh, weekend for, uh, for numbers, but ultimately doesn't really, uh, doesn't really um, make it the same money as you would Memorial Day or Independence Day. Those two seem to be the best. However, there is one really high growth. There, they don't include Christmas Day or New Year's Day as part of the weekends. And so when you look at the singular days for those, 
you look at Christmas opening day, you look at Christmas day, um, openings highest grossing is Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the, um, the, uh, Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes in 2009 with $24 million. That's the highest grossing Christmas day opening highest grossing Christmas day movie doesn't even break 50 million with Star Wars The Force Awakens bringing in $49 million. And then Star Wars The Last Jedi bringing in $27 million Christmas Day. And then Star Wars Rogue One, a Star Wars story, bringing in $25 million. Christmas Day, is as much as they try to hype up Christmas movies, most people are not going to the movies at Christmas. You compare that to New Year's where even fewer people are going to the movies as Star Wars The Force Awakens and Avatar are the highest grossings for New Year's Day. With Meet the Fockers rounding that up. But but then you compare that to the overall season. That is ho the holiday season. Like, here are the seasons according to Box Office Mojo. Winter, which is from when to when. It does not say... Come on, where are the, uh, what are the, what are the times for winter? I'm guessing that's January to March. Uh, spring, I'm guessing is, yeah, March, March to May. Or, yeah, I'm guessing, wait a second, summer. Avengers, no, May is included with summer. So I'm guessing that's April, that's March and April. May summer is May through August. Fall is September. September and October. And then holiday. So November and December are included together for the holiday season. And they are the highest grossing chunk of the year, I think. Oh, no, although, no, uh, spring is thanks to Avengers. Avengers has boosted spring numbers. Before then, it was definitely uh, holiday the holiday season with the Star Wars movies. But, yeah, so the, sum the summer and... Uh, well, actually, Jurassic World and the original Avenger and the first couple of Avengers movies definitely bring up the summer's numbers. And then Black Panther, actually, Black Panther and Deadpool bring up uh, the winter's numbers overall. So... Season by season, like, Marvel has basically dominated, and then Disney as a whole has dominated the box office thanks to the Marvel movies and Star Wars. Um, but yeah, you break down the seasons, and summer, spring, and win and holiday are the highest grossings overall. Although winter gets offset by uh, the two Marvel movies there, although one was Fox. Uh, before the buyout and then uh yeah just overall when, when it comes to holidays uh super bowl is the super bowl is your is your death nail no super bowl and labor day are basically you don't release movies on that day i don't know why they even bother releasing movies on those days because nobody has taken advantage of those 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 weekends 
Nobody's going to see movies during the Super Bowl. You're essentially got a two-day weekend when it comes to the Super Bowl. And so that's why they try to do a lot of counter-programming with the Super Bowl, with things like the Hannah Montana concert movie. And then nobody takes advantage of Labor Day because I guess they figure everybody is just having barbecues. But you could say the same thing for Memorial Day, but millions of people go to see movies during Memorial Day. Yet Labor Day gets no good movies. I don't know why nobody takes advantage of Labor Day. Like, you could make a killing on Labor Day if you release the right movie on it. Because there would be no competition. But nobody does anything with Labor Day. And then, like, you look at President's Day. President's Day has benefited from having tentpole releases like uh, Black Panther and Deadpool and Fifty Shades and these high-profile releases. Why is nobody doing the same for Labor Day? You could make Labor Day an event weekend if you put the right movies there, but nobody cares, and I don't get it. Why not? It's the tail end of the summer. You could kick it off with something, but nobody does anything with it. And then, yeah, you take a look at Christmas and New Year's and nobody cares about them because nobody's going to the theaters those days. They're with their families at home having their own lives. And so nobody wants to really go to the movies. Whereas Thanksgiving Day weekend, you have the benefit of, you know, once you spend your once you spend the dinner with your family, like for our family, we go and celebrate, we go and have, um, you know, uh, uh, we went we would always make a trip to the movies after dinner and we would just spend you know have like a movie night essentially at the at the theater seeing whatever that's new coming out so i don't know how many families are like mine that did, that would do that but that was a thing that is a thing you don't see that with christmas and new years nobody's really going rushing out to the movies during those times also mainly because half of the you know the northern half of the country is you know treacherous to travel depending on the weather so there's no there's not an incentive to go to the theaters but um so yeah that's kind of a breakdown of the holiday box offices uh basically financially if you want your movie to do well you release it on memorial day weekend or maybe thanksgiving you don't really focus a lot on christmas you get the lead up to christmas but disney is kind of cornered that market with the star wars movies um they've also kind of cornered the market on thanksgiving so good luck um but yeah if you're if you don't if you're just trying to dump out a movie apparently the best way to do it is super bowl weekend and labor day weekend because nobody's going to see movies those weekends nobody cares uh so yeah that's kind of what to expect from your holidays uh that's how the holidays really affect the box offices um, not a lot of stuff. And it basically comes down to the holiday isn't as important as the movies being released. Cause once one thing you do notice is that the movies that make the most money have something for them. They're part of a massive franchise like the fast and the furious or the Marvel movies or Batman V Superman, you know, the DC movies. So they have, it's not, doesn't matter the, the, um, holiday. Of what's really driving the money is what we talked about last i think we talked about this last week or the week before basically that people go to things they recognize and so the highest grossing stuff is things that people have recognized like the marvel movies like dc movies like the fast and the furious franchise like star wars 
that's what people are going to see because they can guarantee that there's going to be some base level to it. They don't have to flip a coin and see if they'll like a thing or not. You know, especially when you're paying so much. So if movie prices, you know, people had more money to spend on seeing movies, maybe they wouldn't be so hesitant to try new things. But, you know, now we're talking about raising the, you know, raising the wages and workers' rights. And this isn't a leftist podcast, I swear. Even though I'm a pink Okami bastard is, you know, as red as they come. Anyway. Uh, enough of that nonsense. Let's get, let's end this discussion and go on to the box office report. Yes, speaking of box offices. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. So since, uh, Independence Day landed like dead smack in the middle of the week, uh, there isn't really a weekend for, uh, independent, for that sort of thing. We're just taking a look at July 5th through the 7th. And then once we get into the individual movies, we can take a look at specifically how much money Spider-Man has grossed so far. And uh, so taking a look at this week's top seven, uh, Falling Out is Avengers Endgame that after its rise up to go, to meet Spider-Man Far From Home, it's it's fallen back down out of the top seven. Men in Black International is out of the top seven. And uh, sitting at number seven is The Secret Life of Pets 2, which brought in $4.7 million. This is a really low-earning top seven this weekend. It's, all the money went to very certain movies. Uh, so, so far, uh, Secret Life of Pets 2 has brought in $140.7 million. Domestically, worldwide, $262 million. So, very successful movie for Illumination. Expect more from them. Opening at number six is Midsummer, which brought in... Uh, $6.5 million uh, over the weekend. And uh, because it opened up Ju uh, July 3rd, I think it, July 3rd is when it opened up. I think it opened up the day before Independence Day. Uh, it has grossed $10.9 million overall. So let me see if IMDb has the budget because Box Office Mojo does not. Nope. So over to Wiki. Over to Wiki. Here we go. Da -da -da. Less than $10 million. So made back its budget. That means it's a success for A24. Good for them. Uh, next, next up, we take a look at number five, which is Aladdin dropping down from four. Uh, brought in $7.6 million, bringing its domestic gross to $320.7 million, and worldwide has brought in $921.6 million. We are very likely going to see Aladdin hit a billion dollars by the end of its box office run. We'll see. We'll see if it ends up making over a billion, but yeah, between the domestic markets and the foreign markets doubling what the domestic markets earned, <laughs> Aladdin could be a billion-dollar movie, which is just going to be another excuse for bob Iger to continue raking our raking our childhoods over the coals for his own profit uh anyway uh dropping from two to four is annabelle comes home which brought in 9.7 million dollars bringing its domestic gross up to 50.1 million dollars and its overall worldwide gross 
to $134.7 million. Wildly successful. Expect more Conjuring spinoffs in the years to come. They'll never let it end. Uh, staying at number three is Yesterday, which brought in $10.7 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $36.8 million, and its worldwide gross up to $56.9 million. So it's it's doubled its money back, so it's it's, it's considered a success. Not a wild runaway success, but it, but it broke itself even. It's in the it's in the black out of the red. So solid, you know, solid get for them. We'll see how it ends, but we'll see how it looks by the end of the run. Uh, jumping up, uh, dropping from one to two is Toy Story Four, but the highest leap in uh pro- in numbers from ten million with yesterday to thirty four point three million dollars uh, for Toy Story Four, uh, making its domestic gross. $306.5 million, and it's worldwide gross $649.9 million, which, yeah, that's that's wildly successful, once again, for Toy Story and, and Disney. You know, just, there's just never enough money for Iger. There's never going to be enough. And we keep, we keep feeding the beast. It never ends. Capitalism! <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, premiering at number one is... Spider-Man Far From Home, shocking nobody, with $93.6 million, making, and uh, overall so far, its domestic gross has been $185 million, and its worldwide gross opening weekend is $580 million. How does that compare to the cinematic universe opening weekends? Far From Home. Well, I guess opening weeks. Hold on. So opening week, because it's been out since Monday night, uh, $185 million. So most of these other guys only got, um, only got their two weekends. Uh, you can look at, a, if you include up, the Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday numbers, Spider-Man made more its opening week than basically everything except Age of Ultron, Black Panther, The Avengers, Infinity War, and Endgame. So it's right by, it's right ahead of Captain America's Civil War in terms of like opening numbers. If you include the rest of the week. Weekend, it's still behind Guardians of the Galaxy. But, um, yeah, that's not bad. That is not bad numbers. So, hundred like, once again, you take a look at, uh, you take a look at, um, worldwide, uh, num- you take a look at the worldwide numbers opening at, uh, where is it? Far from home. Where'd you go far from home? Why am I not seeing far from home? There it is. It's so far down because it's only opening weekend. It's opening weekend. It made more money than Ant-Man did during its entire run. So it's right behind the original uh, Iron... It's right behind the first Iron Man movie in terms of its in terms of its overall winning... Winnings. Jesus. Um, now I sound like... Uh, what's his name? Jeff Bezos. My winnings. My Amazon winnings. <laughs> Capitalism. Anyway... 
I feel like I need to do a long-term look at my love-hate relationship with the fact that I love the movies of the cinematic universe, Marvel Cinematic Universe and the artistic content that Disney creates. But the company themselves are dickbags and I wish the whole system around them would collapse and burn in hellfire. But that's just me. That's just me. Anyway, congratulations, Spider-Man. You made, you made monies. You did goods. So that was the week that was. Let's take a look to the week ahead in Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. We've only got two new releases this weekend. Uh, they're very, very small compared to Spider-Man. I feel like there's going to be a... I feel like there's a trepidation to try and follow up Spider-Man. So first up, we've got uh, a new a Sam Raimi-produced horror movie from Ale, Ale, Alexander Aha, the director of the Hills of Eyes remake. It's uh, a new creature feature monster movie, Crawl. Let's take a look at that trailer. The state of Florida has issued a Category 5 hurricane warning. All residents must evacuate immediately. Grab your families, your loved ones, and get out. It 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 is so haunting that the actress, lead actress in this movie, looks like looks as like a it could play the sister of a friend of mine that I recent that I recently got back in touch with, and has since oh moved. Like the friend is the one who gave me Mama Boots. And I swear to God, this this actress looks like her, she could be her sister. It's so weird. Anyway. Yeah, we got gators. We've got hurricanes with alligators and... I thought you said people weren't going to be able to come get you. When's this all about? Oh, yeah. This... From Sam Raimi. A producer of Evil... Oh, you know, the director of the Evil Dead, you know. Uh, and Alexander... Uh, Alexander Aha. The director of The Hills Have Eyes. Oh, oh, bending odds and if the puppy dies. I'll say this for the trailer. It is a solid use of percussive uh beats to emphasize like tension like ding 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 bum 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 that sort of uh heartbeat you know percussion going on that's a solid uh marketing tactic that's very good at kind of you know kind of like enticing you like ding 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 it's like it's exactly what makes the jaws theme work so well 
That said, this movie looks like complete ass, and I'm very curious to see if this ends up being a bad movie night uh, or not. And sadly, my nephew is out of town, so and um, I mentioned this on Twitter. I think he's getting sick of Bad Movie Squad. I think he wants to just stick to good movies. So I'll have to wait and see if I if somebody else joins me for Bad Movie Squad or not. We'll see. But um, yeah, I'm de we're gonna. We're going to see some trash this weekend, for sure. Thankfully, that trash is going to be offset with Kumail Nanjiani's next movie, where he stars against uh, Dave Bautista. Uh, there have been newer trailers, but those gave way too much away, and I didn't want to do that to you, because I didn't want to also... because. One, I didn't want to be spoiled personally. I feel like just watching the beginnings of those trailers spoiled a lot. And I rather than have you be spoiled as well, uh, I'm just going to go to the official uh, original trailer. The the first one that came out to announce the movie was released. Um, so yeah, let's take a look at Stuber. Please be a five-star ride. Hey! Uber? Yeah. Be nice. I'm Stu. How do you do? Compton. Um, a little driver. Do you have a more specific address? Compton! With a huge cop. That's not how Uber works. Hi, ladies. What the hell's going on? You selected the Uber pool option. Uber what? Ladies, official police business. Is that even real? Get out of the car! Official From 20th Century Fox. Don't see a friend. Take this. Oh, I am not touching that. It's a baby gun. It allows you to fire it while crying. Is this an Uber? <laughs> Get angry! Stop that! Why are you laughing? Hold it! This is a lease! He got shot in the leg. Good for you, man. You're such a first guy. This July. Oh, Dave Bautista is the best. He kidnapped me. It doesn't freaking Jaws. Exactly. Just like Jaws, it's going to work. Ready? We killed some people. Prepare for the ride share of your life. Stuber. I got this. Hello, operator. We need help. Someone's trying to murder us. Hello, operator. We need help. Someone's trying to murder us. Okay, <laughs> Ah, uh, oh, this looks like fun. Now, this is the one my nephew actually wanted to see because he's a he, ever since. Uh, um, I don't know if he watched uh, wrestling with when Batista was on there, but um, he's been a fan of Batista as Drax, and he thinks this is basically if Drax came to Earth and was a cop. Uh, that's basically what he, the kind of chaos that ensues, and then just Kumail on Johnny's along for the ride. I'm very excited for this one. I really hope it's good. So, um, actually, while I'm thinking about it, uh, who is behind... I forgot the most important bits. The writers and director. Screenplay by Tripper Clancy. 
who does not let's go to the wiki page to see if there's anything on them written by tripper clancy who is best known for four against the bank which is a german language german yeah german language comedy um so originally titled Wir, Wir gegen die Bank. Wir gegen die, die Bank, I believe. Uh, this that's the only so this is his first English language movie, it looks like. He's also written something called Hot Dog. Not Hot Dog the movie, but uh just something called Hot Dog. Which is also in German. Also, he's a German writer with his first English-American release. Very interesting. Uh, the director is Michael Douse, who is best known for It's All Gone Pete Tong. What it... Ooh! Goon! So, we got a good... I hear good things about Goon. And, um... He's apparently the director of something called Fubar. Uh, Terry and Dean explore the death of friendship and the art, of, art and science of drinking beer like a man. Uh... So apparently he was behind uh, uh, this whole um, this something called Fubar back in the UK, and um, he's also directed a couple episodes of Future Man uh, and Man Seeking Woman. So take oh oof. He also dro directed the atrocious Take Me Home Tonight, but you know that was probably just a job for hire. There's not probably nothing they could do to save that movie. So we'll see how he does uh, with this, and if this uh, German writer can do can do just as well in English. We'll see. Oh, Karen Gillan's in this. They haven't revealed her in the trailers, I don't think. But uh, yeah, she, I, I'm interested to see how she, what, who she plays, and how she's involved. I'm very interested in this. So yeah, we'll see what how this ends up, uh, and that's going to be this week, this upcoming weekend. So uh, that about does it for this episode, which means. It is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, you can do so by favoriting us on your web browser and whitelisting us on your ad blocker. And once you're done checking out all of, all of Popcorn Junkie, be sure to check out uh, our sister podcast, Living in the Stacks, our monthly book club podcast this coming uh, month we'll be doing Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, which served as the inspiration for uh, Love Simon, one of my favorite movies of last year. Uh, I'll, I'll have a lot of thoughts based on the adaptation and which I prefer versus the original. Um, so stay tuned to that. That'll keep coming out uh, later this month. Uh, you can also check out all of Donna's stuff over at Snarcasts. Uh, once more with feeling. Uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, The Family Business. And if you yourself are a podcaster and, want to, and you would like to join our lovely little network, you can do so by sending us a message at gumbycatnetworks at gmail.com. And uh, we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And we'll check out your stuff and see if you're a good fit. Uh, I'll, I'll, I will admit, I haven't been checking the email as often. I also don't think it's listed. No, it's listed. Okay. So, okay, so it's not like I've been neglecting you all. Uh, but, yeah. Um, that's weird. Uh, so, sorry, something from an old job of mine is listed under Gumby Cat Networks. 
but yeah, send your send your inquiries to gumbikinetworks at gmail.com and we we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to check out your podcast and we'd love you to help our little network grow and become something more. You can also uh but if you uh, listen to the Popcorn Junkie on the go, you can find us on uh, your various podcast providers, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio. And uh, if we're not available on your platform, let uh, let me know at popcornjunkiepodcast.gmail.com and I'll see if I can add myself there. Uh, and while you're there, leave a five-star rating and review. Let, let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well. You can also share us on your various social medias. Uh, social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, cornjunkiepod. That's where I do a lot more of my uh, interacting with people. I talk with other uh, film, you know, aspects of film Twitter. I actually got a response from the director of, sc- of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark who revealed to me the the time period where the mo- when the movie takes place because I wasn't sure. And it was really, and it's like, my podcast Twitter account got accosted for for deigning to insult the um, legitimacy of the Ugly Dolls for uh, franchise, and also got responded, and also got a response from the director of Scary Movies to Tell in the Dark when I wasn't sure what time period it took place in. This is Twitter is very weird, you guys. But yeah, follow me over there at Corn Junkie Pod. I do trailer talk, and uh, hopefully now that my schedule is kind of back, to, going back to some normalcy, I'm gonna try and do some more bunch alongs. You can also uh, follow me on Instagram. I'm not very active there. That's Popcorn Junkie Podcast. Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at Corn Junkie Pod. That's where you'll find my written reviews, and you can look at all of my lists, see my rankings for the MCU movies, the Godzilla retrospective, the Pokemon retrospective. And what is currently on my favorites and least favorites and blandest movies for 2019 so far. And then you can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. That's where you'll find my sort of uh, snippet reviews where I talk about the new releases or whatever I'm seeing. You'll get a glimpse of what I'm reviewing this coming week for the next episode. So... Be sure to check me out there. And if there's anything else you want to say to me, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of thoughts you have on the releases, uh, what did you think of Midsummer? What did you think of Spider-Man? Uh, what did you, what, you know, do you have anything to add, like uh, for the box offices, maybe as a theater employee or something like that, or a former theater employee? Then uh, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and I'd love to include an audience feedback segment. So, you know, the only thing that I need is for the audience to actually provide feedback. Uh, that does it for this week's episode. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and it's a hell of a lot harder to celebrate Independence Day when there are children in cages. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Yeah.